I'm sorry that uh, my brother, your pastor, is under the weather. I know he'd love to be here with you, and I'm thankful to have the opportunity to speak to you. Um, he he asked me around 1 o'clock yesterday if I could fill in for him. He was, I guess, hoping that he would feel better and just is not. And so um, it worked out well. I had normally, by about Thursday, I've got it pretty settled in my mind, my outline, and what I'm going to preach on. And um, just had not had the time. So even on Saturday, right after I got done doing some studying on my work break, that was right when he sent the text. So um, we're, we just started a new series at Hopewell in the book of Timothy. Uh, so we're early in this series. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 is what I had planned to preach to Hopewell, and uh, I don't feel led to go a different direction. So I invite you to look there. Great text. Many of you probably are familiar with the scripture song, even more than uh those of us at Hopewell, uh, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. I think everybody knows that pretty well. So maybe we'll sing that at some point um, this morning. But the, uh, the subject is just so exciting. I appreciate the prayer that was offered, and I ask you to continue to pray as we uh, meditate on that this morning, um, the glory of our King, Jesus. Unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. There's so much there. Um, I want to just start there with uh, the kind of king that it is that, that we serve. And the first thought that I had in this is that we have a servant leader king. You can read through scripture and there's a lot of different kinds of kings. Saul is quite a contrast to King David. David, it's interesting that his preparation, and Moses as well, preparation for being a ruler and a leader was to be a shepherd and so Jesus is certainly the perfect uh, shepherd king, servant leader king. And the thing that I think about when it comes to Jesus being a servant leader is how he's not just happy or content to rule and to tell you uh, what to do. He certainly does that, and he does that well. But he is one who wants you to grow and to develop to be uh, the kind of leader that God would call you to be. You know, that's what we read in First Peter chapter 2 that you've been made a royal priesthood. You're made kings and priests unto God. So you serve as servant king who wants you to grow into God's calling for your life to be a king, to be a ruler. Isn't that interesting to think about? Um, Adam was given, we read in the book of Genesis, quite a gift. Asa and I were on the way down here. He picked out a CD that he's kind of like a DJ. He's really good at picking out CDs that you wouldn't expect. And there was a song on there. And the lady, the first song that we heard on the CD, it was a mix of old Christian contemporary songs from like the early 2000s. And she was talking about just being content with your lot. And she said, and even if we don't have a roof over our head, what better view could you have than the starry sky at night? And just talking about being content and trusting the Lord for our provisions and what we stand in need of. But you think about Adam and what he was given in the Garden of Eden. And I want to remind you of that in Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. And then what does he say? And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now in our corruption, I think that mankind added human beings to that, and we want to rule over slaves in our human nature for, for financial profit. That's not in the list here. But God does give to man, to mankind, dominion over all of the creation. So that's quite a gift. And man is to do that as a reflection and an imitation of God, who is the creator and the ruler over all the universe. 
Now, you don't have to read far in the scriptures to get to Genesis 3, where uh, the devil, through deceit, uh, basically tricks Adam and Eve out of their title, deed, and right that they had to, uh, the, to the creation that God had given them. But I want to preach to you this morning about a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came in the fullness of time, and he came to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So he redeemed us through his precious blood, but he's also restored that authority to take dominion over the creation that God originally gave to Adam. Now that ought to put you on shouting ground this morning. To think about the authority that you have in the name of Jesus Christ and by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we read in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus made a remarkable promise to Peter and to the apostles and to the New Testament church, and that was that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, a lot of times we think about the church being in a defensive posture. We're just a small little group of believers, mostly uh, women and children a lot of times. You think about the pilgrims when they came here. There's a, a hundred people on that boat. Fifty of them were members of the same congregation in Scrooby. Where, where was that? In the Netherlands. And then you had 50, they called them the pilgrims and then the strangers. The other 50, they had come for other reasons than religious reasons. But they're in the boat and they've come, just a small handful of people. At one point, I remember hearing that through that first winter, there were only about seven that had enough health to minister to the others that were sick and, uh, and, and uh, unable to work. So you think about the small beginnings of this country, really. That was the first successful colony in the New World and what it's grown into. Um, and what's remarkable when you think about the church here at Fairhaven or at Fellowship or at Heritage or at Hopewell, um, this little group, and I know we have different sized congregations, but you think about a little group of mostly women and children and that that is something that causes the devil in hell to tremble. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That this could be a threat to Satan's kingdom, this little group of people. And that's what Jesus is talking about if you want to think about it from an offensive position. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, meaning the strongholds that are in your life, the strongholds that are in your family, in your community, in your congregation, in your country, in the world, God's calling you by the authority that you have in Jesus' name to go and to reclaim what rightfully belongs to your Father in heaven. What he gave to his people, what he gave to Adam and Eve to rule over, what was lost because of sin and by Satan's cunning craftiness, and what has been restored by Jesus Christ, and what is being restored by the success and the, the, um, the, the forward motion of the church. Now you think about that. Now look, I've had kind of a change of mind, and there's different opinions when it comes to eschatology, and I don't mind if you have a totally opposite dif- opinion about end times than I do, because really I think the thing about prophecy is it's always a little bit foggy and hazy when you're on the front end of it. It's after it's fulfilled that you look back and you can see God's wisdom and his preciseness, the precision of what he declared would happen. When the Jews were anticipating Christ's coming, they had a lot of misinterpretations about what it was going to look like. Even the apostles thought that he was going to be a reigning king and drive out the Roman army and that they had a view of the kingdom that was different than what Jesus' view is. But after it's fulfilled, once the, in hindsight, once we're in heaven and it's all fulfilled, then you're going to look back and you're going to say, that's exactly what he said was going to happen. It, it went exactly the way God predicted it. But you see, it's kind of interesting if you think about warfare. God is telling you what's going to happen, but he can't do it in such a way that you're telling the enemy your next moves. So he's got it written in such a way that it, it declares his sovereignty and his omniscience, that he knows the, the past and the future equally the same and, and the present. It tells you what to do and to prepare and and how to live your life based on what's coming uh, next, but it doesn't telegraph to the enemy uh, God's next moves. And that, Jesus says there's some things, even 
the Son of Man, speaking of himself, that are not revealed to mankind, to humanity. The Lord doesn't know the day or the hour. No man knows the day or the hour when he's going to come the second time. But uh, I've had a little bit of a paradigm shift, a worldview shift about uh, end times because there's some scriptures, a lot of scriptures in the New Testament talk about how in the last days evil times shall come, perilous times shall come, for men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And it paints a pretty bleak picture. But here's the paradigm shift that I've had. In Daniel chapter, I think chapter 7, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he needed an interpretation for, and Daniel's able to give him the interpretation. And part of that dream was he saw this great image that had a head of gold. Maybe you're familiar with this. A head of gold, brass, uh, chest of silver, legs of brass, and then iron, uh, the bottom part of the legs, and then iron mixed with clay was the toes and the feet. And Daniel said, this is a picture of your kingdom and the kingdoms that are going to follow. Nebuchadnezzar had the best kingdom. He had that head of gold, right? And then the, um, was it the Medes and Persians would come next. And then after that would be um, Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And then you'd have the Roman Empire. And uh, in, the, in the days of that last kingdom that would be set up with that uh, partly strong, partly weak kingdom, the iron mixed with clay, the God of heaven is going to set up his kingdom in the earth. So we're t- we're have, we have... World history before it took place, 500 B.C., people that aren't believers think Daniel must have been written after Jesus was born because it's so precise in talking about the kingdoms that were going to come after Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. And so God's going to set up his kingdom in the days of that last kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar saw in that image. And, um, and, and it's going to strike that image on its feet. God is going to take a piece of rock out of the mountain and it's going to come into the earth, it's going to land on the feet of that image, and it's going to grow. It's going to cause that whole image, to fall, to that statue, that symbol of those kingdoms to crumble, and then it's going to grow, and it's going to fill the earth, and it doesn't say, and then it's going to get small again. It says it's going to grow, and it's going to fill the earth. Okay, well, that's a little bit different perspective. And when you look at the long arch of church history, Really what you see is a victorious New Testament church spreading all over the world. The fact that you're here today is because the pilgrims came here seeking religious liberty. And they were seeking religious liberty because they had learned the way of God in truth. And they were desiring separation from the influence of the Roman Catholic Church and the state church. You know, I know I'm on a lot of tangents, but I just want to drop this with you as well. You have a remarkable history as primitive Baptist. I want you to know that. You have a remarkable legacy. Because there is a man... Primitive Baptist minister was before the split, so he would have just been a Baptist elder, but his name was Elder John Leland. Anybody ever heard of Elder John Leland? Elder John Leland is the reason that you have the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. I'll guarantee you that's right. You can go, there's a plaque in Virginia, in Orange County, Virginia, where he met James Madison at a picnic, and James Madison represented the founding fathers and the Constitutional uh, Convention, or whatever they called it, who were trying to get the 13 colonies, the 13 states, to ratify the Constitution. And John Leland said, the people that I represent, the Baptists of Virginia, have some concerns. And our concern is that if you have a strong federal government, there may be a formal federal uh, recognized church like you have in China, like you had in England, like the, the Pope would like to have in every nation where there's central power and there's an authorized church where you can legally go and worship. And if you're not a part of that congregation, it's almost like you don't get a social security card or a birth certificate. You're not a part of society. And so your option is convert to the state religion, Go away, leave, or be killed. Those are your three options. 
And, and so John Leland said, we are concerned about that with the Constitution. And James Madison and John Leland had a handshake agreement. The handshake agreement was John Leland would, and the people that he represented, the Baptists of Virginia, would support the ratification of the Constitution if James Madison would promise to add the Bill of Rights and guarantee the separation of church and state. That's a primitive Baptist minister's uh, influence on the Constitution. And the, think about the impact that that truth has in this country and around the world. The idea of separation of church and state. That was a novel Baptist New Testament Christian concept. Uh, Constantine in 300 AD, his concept was, even whether he was a truly converted Christian or not, his concept was, we can't fight them anymore. You know, it was paganism versus Christianity. Christianity is winning. So if you can't fight them, join them. So we're going to make Christianity the official religion. Now everybody's got to be a Christian, at least nominally. At least uh, you have to pretend like you're a Christian. And you've got to go to the official church. And guess what? We're going to raise taxpayer revenue, and we're going to pay our preachers from the state coffers. Well, guess what that invites? It invites a whole lot of corruption. And so that stronghold that began with Constantine converting to Christianity and then saying the whole Roman Empire, which was the whole known world, is going to have to be Christian, spread over all the world through the Dark Ages until the Reformation. You had separatists. You had, there's a difference, by the way, between a separatist and a reformer. A reformer wanted to change the Roman Catholic Church into August, Augustine. Augustine, how do you say it? It's not Augustine, it's Augustine. Or not St. Augustine, it's Augustine. Okay, Augustine was a Catholic monk who... He was pretty like a Baptist preacher. He believed in salvation by grace. John Calvin wanted to be like him. Martin Luther wanted to be like him. They wanted to reform the Catholic Church back to that era of the Roman Catholic Church. Separatists said, we don't think there's any reforming it. We don't think it's of the Lord. We're going to stay separated from it. But the separatists are hounded. They're persecuted by the Catholic Church until the Reformation takes place. Then they can poke their head up and think, well, now it's safe to be open about our faith. And then... The reformers that were their friends at first, like Martin Luther and others, they kind of got uh, pressured and embarrassed, and, and maybe there was political pressure, and they decided, well, we're going to persecute the separatists as well. And even John Calvin, who I believe a lot of his doctrine, his um, salvation by grace doctrine, was spot on. Uh, his idea of separation of church and state was non-existent. He wanted to start Geneva in Switzerland where everybody had to be a Presbyterian. And if you're not a Presbyterian, guess what your options are? Convert to being a Presbyterian, leave, or be killed. And he, I believe, history records that he did even martyr some Christians who they had everything in common except for this idea of separation of church and state. So look, it's a very profound idea, experiment that's taking place in this country some 250 years later that you can have um, a people who respect the rule of law they respect their uh, elected leaders, but they're given the freedom to practice their religion according to their own convictions, according to how they understand the scripture. That is an experiment that really, when you look at world history, never was tried before. That's kind of a big statement, but I think that's accurate. You can check me on that. Because even in the Old Testament, you know, what was it that God gave to Israel? He gave them their own land. So everybody in this land, you're going to be circumcised, you're going to be a Jew. And you can't compromise with anybody else. There can't be any uncircumcised Philistines or Gentiles in the land because they're going to corrupt your influence. They're going to corrupt your morals and your character. And so the Old Testament was not uh, evangelistic. It was isolationalist, you know, kind of like the Amish. We're going to just, sometimes homeschoolers go to this extreme too. We're going to just 
get our family together, we're going to have a compound that we're going to try to keep the world out so that we can maintain our integrity and our ethics and our values. Um, the New Testament is evangelistic. The New Testament has a mission to go and to impact the world with the light and with the truth of the gospel. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Now, I know that the congregations that are represented here are involved in mission work. Hopewell, we're just kind of we're kind of getting on board with that. I'm thankful God's opened the door for to go to Ethiopia. <coughs> Elder Mike Rogers and Brother Ben Corley are planning to go, and his son Jason Corley in January. And so that's a great blessing. I'm glad that God's opening that door for our congregation. I'm thankful for the opportunities that that Fairhaven has to minister. I know in India and fellowship in Africa and Heritage. What are you all involved with at Heritage? Do you have? <coughs> Is there anything here to supporting? Okay, in Africa. So, all right, so think about this, though, for a minute. Um, if you wanted to help a country, let's say like Ethiopia, just for example, there's, there's uh, organizations that people commit or create, and they send volunteers there to dig wells or you know, things like that, and Christians do that as well. But if you wanted to, as a group of people, help another group of people, another country, a neighboring country, what's the best thing you could do for them? You know, our gov- current government thinks sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine is the best thing that we can do, and lots of weapons. That's the best thing we can do for the people of Ukraine. I would submit to you, the best thing you can do for a place like Ethiopia or Malawi or India is to send the gospel. That The gospel is the power of God into salvation. And that when God blesses a land with the, the preaching of the gospel and with, trust, with churches to be started, that is a, a powerful thing. It's a powerful um, source of good, for good in the land. And we're talking about uh, people being saved and believing in Jesus Christ, but just as a, as a whole, being the salt and light in that community. What a wonderful blessing for a country or for a community. Now, I'm going to give you a vision um, for, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're talking about Jesus Christ as our king. He's made you a royal priesthood, kings and priests unto God. What does that mean? You may say, well, I, I work a nine-to-five job. I feel like I'm somebody's slave. And I'm just barely making ends meet and just getting by. I don't really feel like a king. So let's get a vision for what God is calling you to do as a believer, as kings and priests unto God. And that's taking dominion over what belongs to God rightfully, what's been given to you as a believer in Jesus Christ, and a vision for uh, spreading the kingdom of God. Now, you spread the gospel. Brother Zach, guess in my ordination, use the analogy of an um, a aircraft carrier. Uh, the pilots that fly the airplanes um, that's kind of like the preachers not everybody's a pilot but everybody on that ship is working for the same goal and that is to launch airplanes to get the gospel out what a great analogy that whether you're called to preach you're either his attitude that he wanted to teach his sons and I think this is a great attitude is you're either a preacher or a preacher's helper in the church or you're either a preacher's wife or a deacon's wife in the church. That should be the vision that we have for our children, getting the gospel out, raising them up to have that kind of attitude in the church. So whether you're a preacher or whether you're a preacher's helper, we need Aaron's and hers who hold up the arms like they did for Moses because when Moses' arms got tired and his, the staff starts to come down, the Amalekites prevailed. But when Moses' arms were up and the staff was held up, the rod of God, the uh, children of Israel prevailed. So if you... Uh, aren't holding up the arms of your pastor, I guarantee you his arms are going to get tired. And God forbid that we be like some that might want to pull down the arms of the pastor and say, well, I don't like you. You know, I don't like the way you dress or I don't like the way you talk, so I'm going to try to hinder your ministry. What a horrible attitude to have. You start doing something like that, you start messing with God's church and with the Lord's ministry, that's like touching the apple of his eye. You better be careful that God doesn't touch the apple of your eye, whatever those things are that are important in your life. If you start attacking 
uh, what God is doing in the earth. That's a frightening place to be in. So if you've got a problem with a preacher, if you've got a problem with a brother or sister in the church, you better go to that person and work it out. And if they're a heretic and if they need to be excluded from the church, then you all do that as a church. But if they're not a heretic, you better be reconciled to one another. And we've got to stop tolerating in the New Testament church of the living God all the backbiting and all the gossip and all the criticizing. Let's follow Matthew 18. If we've got a problem with one another, let's go and deal, let's deal with it. Like adults. Let's talk about it. Let me, take, let me be honest with you. You be honest with me. And let's work through our stuff. And if we can't, then let's get the church involved when we follow that proper order. And whatever the church judges, whatever the church decides, we've got to submit to it. And if we don't, Jesus says, let him be to you a heathen man or a publican. That's what being part of a church is about, submitting to the authority of the local New Testament church. So you have authority as kings and priests unto God. And here's a vision for you. Brother Jeremy prayed for our country. And I got the impression from your, country, from your prayer that you're a little discouraged about the way things are going in the world and in, in our land that we live in. So we can have a defeatist mindset. Well, the good days are behind us and we're just going to basically hold on by, the, by our fingernails until the Lord comes back. And hopefully he comes really soon because things are getting really dark. And that's good for us to desire him to come really soon. But if we flip it over and we think about the gates of hell not prevailing against it, I want you to think about how Roe versus Wade was overturned last summer. That was a miracle from heaven. That was a stronghold of Satan. I think it was a curse in our land for the last 40 years, however long, since 1972 or 1, because of that law, because our federal government had said that every state in the Union must allow and tolerate the murder of unborn children. That was a heinous thing out of the pit of hell that came upon our land. God blessed it to be overturned. That was the power of God, I believe, as an answer to prayer of his people. Now, you can have all these thoughts in your mind and say, well, wouldn't it be great if this happened? Or wouldn't it be great if, if we saw this happen in our country? Okay, I just want to take, challenge you to take it one step further. Rather than just having those thoughts in your mind and in your heart, I want to challenge you to pray about it in Jesus' name. And say, dear God, this stronghold of Satan that's in our community or in our church or in my heart, would you deliver us in Jesus' name and by the blood of Christ? And I want you to see the shackles that Satan has and that he wants you to think you're going to have to live with the rest of your life be broken by the power of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. He's called you to be kings and priests. And that's what it means. A priest is a worshiper. A king is a ruler. So what is it in your life? What is it in this country that you feel like is displeasing to God, that is uh, not in accordance with his will, that's not in accordance with scripture, and when we start getting on our knees and start begging God for Jesus' sake to make it right? Whether it's who our leaders are, whether it's what the laws are that's passed. I mean, what are the strongholds when you think about it and I want you to encompass the whole country. Because here's the vision that I've got. Here's the vision that I believe God is giving. And that is that we get control of our country first. And then we go out to the rest of the world. And we don't be our brother's keeper. Like we tell every country what to do. Like be the, the worldwide police. That's not what God's calling us to do. But we be our brother's brother. And we go out and we help them. The best thing we can do is sending the gospel. But if they need some financial help to get on their feet or whatever it is that we love them like we're supposed to love our neighbor like we love ourselves, and we do that as a country. But it starts with getting our house in order here first, getting control of the ship of state. And you may have the attitude this morning, of, well, that's just impossible. Things are so bad, there's no way we can ever get control of this country. And you may be right, but I hope you're wrong. And Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg uh, Memorial that they had right after the, that battle in the Civil War made this proposition or this question. He said, will this form of government perish from the earth and remember the country was only about 80 years old at the time is it going to perish from the earth after just a short period after a couple of generations 
Or will there be a new birth of freedom? Is our constitutional republic going to endure like the Star Spangled Banner? What a great song for us to have as our national anthem. Does that Star Spangled Banner still wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? Guess what? You're not going to have freedom in this country if there aren't brave men who are willing to stand up and say, uh, we're not going to consent to unjust mandates and laws. That there is such a thing that's appropriate called civil disobedience when you have an ungodly law or an ungodly mandate that's being foisted upon the people. It's going to take men who have courage and have faith in God to stand up and say, we're not going to go down this path for the sake of our wives and children, for the sake of the future generations. We're going to stop going on a hellish course as a nation, and we're going to go on a heavenly course. We're going to steer this thing because it's government of the people, for the people, by the people. So you don't have the liberty to blame it on a monarch. Guess what? God holds you accountable because this is your government. This nation is other people, for the people, by the people. It's a constitutional republic. Your leaders in Washington, D.C. or in Atlanta, Georgia or Montgomery, Alabama, wherever they may be, are elected to be representatives. And if we don't like their ethics and we don't like their morals and we don't like the decisions they're making, guess what? They're representing you. Maybe where we need to start looking is pointing in our own hearts. If they're compromising, maybe it's because we're compromising. If they're cheating, maybe it's because we're cheating. If they're being dishonest, if they're corrupt, if they're being bribed and blackmailed, if they're serving other interests than the interests of their people, maybe it's because we're blackmailed and we're corrupt and we're serving other interests than our king in heaven. If their priorities aren't right, maybe it's because it's a reflection that our priorities aren't right. So you see, you have actually have a great deal of power as a believer in Jesus Christ, as someone who's informed about what the word of God says, as somebody who lives in a nation that has this constitution that I believe God blessed those men to write that says that the power resides at the local level. At the state level. That's where the power resides. So that means that you can have grassroots efforts like the Tea Party back in the late 2010s or the MAGA Party now. You have grassroots efforts that come, come at the lowest levels and that work their way up to affect and to influence the highest levels. That's a remarkable gift that you have and that you're to be a steward of. Don't take that for granted and don't blame other people or don't blame the Lord when things are out of control or out of whack in your nation. Yes, they're out of whack. We let it get out of whack. It happened on our watch. So guess what we need to do? We need to repent. We need to ask God for wisdom about how to run our government. I mean, think about that. When the pilgrims came, it was a group of Christians mostly who were just living, living together. And so they could do that. They could you know, follow the scriptures and get along. And as it grew and you have more maybe unbelievers, you've got to figure out a way. You've got to have laws. You've got to have standards of interaction to protect the weak and so that you can all get along and you're not trampling on each other's rights. And that's from that is where we have this mammoth federal government bureaucracy that invades every area of our life. It doesn't have to be that way. The Constitution and the Scriptures are enough. And there's probably a lot, as we pray for God to cleanse our land, that can be done away with. A lot of things that we don't need, and they really weren't originally intended for this nation, that we can ask God to cleanse the land of and get back to the foundation, which is God's word for our morals and for our ethics and the Constitution for our civil laws. That should be the essentials that we think about um, for the future of this nation. And I know that, that I'm, I sound like a Christian nationalist, and I am. I'm not embarrassed to say that. Um, what's, the, what's the alternative? A Christian globalist? I don't believe in global dominion other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in boundaries. I believe in uh, countries making their own laws and rules. And I don't believe in America telling every other country what they need to do. 
And I'm thankful that a lot of countries have started to follow America's example of separation of church and state and giving that religious liberty. And I hope that that will continue to spread. But there is a verse in Isaiah that says, there's a day coming when the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. I always thought that meant after Jesus comes back. And it might. But I'm starting to pray along the line of maybe that would happen even before he comes back. Um, that we would be blessed. And when you think about the long arch of history and you look at the church and the progress of the church and the benefits that we have today, even the, the luxury, the technology, um, the education, the information uh, that people have worldwide, um, the standard of living, I wasn't there, but I can imagine, is a much, much, much better than it was 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago. That is, to me, a direct or an indirect result of the gospel being successful. Now, as a, as a believer, we understand that it takes God's grace for, you have to be born again by the Spirit of God. God is sovereign in that. As many as were ordained to eternal life believe the gospel. We believe that it's election that enables someone to become a believer. So that theology to me informs me that not, it's not realistic to expect every citizen of America to become a Christian or every citizen of the world to become a Christian. I don't, you know, God may have elected to do that, but when we read in scripture, I don't get that impression that he's chosen every people in a particular nation. He has chosen a people in every nation, tribe, and tongue. But I don't think that that's necessary. I don't think that for America or any other country in the world, or for there to be a global revival, every person has to become a Christian. I think what has to happen is that those who are Christians live like it. And let their light so shine before men that they may see their good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That you be the light of the earth and you be the salt of the world. I think that if Christians are revived in our hearts, in our homes, in our congregations, I think that's going to have such an impact in the community in which you live in that people may not go to church with you. They may not subscribe to all the tenets of your beliefs. They may not even believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe when you live that way, when we live that way, they're going to at least have a respect for the Scriptures, even if they don't read it or believe it all. Have a respect for the Scriptures have respect for the rule of law, and probably have respect for Christian religion, even if they don't subscribe to it or follow it themselves. And that, that's, that's a blessing just a, that accrues to a country or to the world when believers are revived. But, you know, what a great desire and goal to have that you know, we get the gospel out and then to have the confidence to know that Whoever's ordained to eternal life is going to believe that. You don't have to do something. You don't have to present it in such a way in order to make them born again, in order to, to make them to believe. Just state the fact. You don't have to compromise the truth. You don't have to water it down. You don't have to say, well, that's too difficult. We're not going to talk about that because that might discourage them from being a Christian. No, you can speak the truth in love and leave the results up to God. Cast the seed, sow the seed, and entrust the results to Him. So He's called you. That was the first point. Was He's called you to be a king. He's made us... Uh, you are a chosen generation, 1 Peter 2.9, a royal priesthood, unholy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So when we think about being kings and priests unto God, I think the first area that, you're, that we're called to rule over is, is our own bodies. He's given you a body. He's given you spiritual life. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, Having the word of God, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, we're able to bring into subjection 
these bodies that God has given to us. We're not, uh, we're no longer the servants of sin. Doesn't mean that you don't sin, but it does mean you don't follow after sin like a slave. It means that you can bring your body into submission. You can bring those carnal desires and those things that are contrary to God's will into submission to the Holy Spirit. And when you have a stronghold, when you have an addiction, when you have something that is ruling over you like an idol in your life, we can bring it before God that we can come boldly before His throne of grace, Hebrews chapter 4, boldly before His throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can do that for ourselves. We can do that for one another when there is besetting sin in our lives. And we should do that. And if you've got a besetting sin, another thing you can do, the Bible commands us to do, is to confess our faults one to another. It's actually very helpful when you just confess and you get it out there. When you've got a secret sin that you're bottled up, you're holding it in, you're trying to keep it concealed, you don't want anybody to know about it, it has a lot of power over your life. But once you confess it and once it's out in the open, there's no more pretending, uh, it loses a lot of its grip. And so confess your false one to another and then he says and pray for one another that you may be healed that's what we can do in the church that's one of the great blessings of being a part of a church is being able to confess our faults to one another and then pray for one another the prayer of a fervent man availeth much let me read that to you what a great truth Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months talk about prayers having a big impact nationally it didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years because of Elijah's prayer Say, what a cruel thing to do. No, it was because he was grieved with the sin of the people. He went up on Mount Carmel. They had the sacrifices there. The priests of Baal cut themselves. 400 priests of Baal versus Elijah. They called out to their idol God. He didn't answer. Elijah has them pour the water on the fire. Elijah prays to the God of heaven. Fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the wood, licks up the water. It says something else about licking up the dust or something like that. Elijah says, choose you this day whom you will serve, right? And Joshua says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one converteth him, let him that know that he which converteth the sinner from the earth of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. I wanted to read verse 16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So you've got a great weapon in your arsenal. You've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You want to do battle with the lies of Satan. You just take out the scriptures and you say, thus saith the Lord. You've got this appealing, deceitful lie. Well, let me tell you what the truth is. And you cut the head off of that, that lie. You've got that offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then you've got prayer. Praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, Paul says. And for me, the utterance may be given unto me. So praying for the furtherance of the gospel. Praying by the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of God, according to the will of God. You've got a great um, arsenal in your, wep- in your great weapon in your arsenal to do battle with the powers of darkness. And that's another thing, too. The enemy's so crafty. My, one of my great-grandfathers said about the Civil War that if um, it was reported to me through, I think my dad, through my grandfather, that there was, if there had been about ten people on each side, the north and the south, that they'd all been hung the Civil War could have been avoided. So you had ten people behind the scenes stirring up a mess, trying to get people into conflict with each other. And once the true history books are written, once the real history is told, I think we're going to find out that all the wars in the last hundred or so years uh, have been bankers' wars, who were funding both sides, who were making a profit no matter who won. Henry Ford, I know this for a fact, Henry Ford, he's making airplanes and tanks for the Americans, and guess what? If you go to the Germans and you open up their truck, guess what kind of engine you find inside? 
They would have stopped the war right there if he stopped making engines for the Nazis. The enemy wants you to think that your enemy is someone else. Divide and conquer, right? Your enemy is brother and sister so-and-so in the church. And if you just start attacking them, you can win this war and things will go better for you. The enemy's in the, behind the scenes, like the Wizard of Oz, right? He's pulling the strings, he's moving the levers, he's doing all the powerful things, but he's hiding behind the scenes. The Bible tells you plainly who your enemy is. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So there you go, you have a clue. If you're mad at somebody and you think in your mind or your heart, maybe you wouldn't say it with your lips, but you feel it, this is my enemy. This person hates me. Guess what Jesus says to do? Love them and pray for them. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. But you need to have in your mind, they may be acting like your enemy and your adversary, like Saul was to King David, but behind the scenes, there's a spiritual power that you're really wrestling against. It's not that person. Any of us can be used by Satan. Job's wife was used by Satan. She said, why do you retain your integrity? Just curse God and die. Peter was used by Satan. He said, be far from you, Lord, that you go to the cross and that you die for our sins. He didn't say it exactly like that, but that's what he was saying in effect. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. So none of us are exempt. We can all be used. We can all get in the flesh. We can all be sinful when we're angry. But what you're wrestling against, Ephesians chapter 6 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's who you're wrestling against. That's who your real battle is with. If you really want to win this battle, you've got to focus on the real enemy. Stop letting him distract you and make you think that all these other situations or these other people, these groups of people are your enemy. We've been deceived by that in our country for a long time. Republicans hate the Democrats and the Democrats hate Republicans. When you don't realize it's basically two sides of the same coin. They're serving the same foreign entity, right? Uh, my son reminded me of a quote that I saw recently about if you give a man a gun, he can rob a bank. Anybody seen this online? If you give a man a gun, you can rob a bank. If you give a man a bank, he can rob the world. Guess who a lot of times you're fighting against? Global bankers who have an interest in using your wealth and your time and your energy for their own evil purposes. Isn't that a horrible thought? If you think about it, and it turns out that those of you that work in the job, you spend 50% of your day away from your family, away from doing things you'd like to do, maybe serving in the church or helping in ways that are beneficial to other people. You spend 50% of your day, when you add all the taxes together, to go to uh, an institution or institutions that use that money for what good? For what purposes? To fund abortion? To fund unjust wars? That war in Ukraine, whatever happened to weapons of mass destruction, right? 9-11 happens, the people that did this, they're going to hear from us, so now we're going to go bomb Iraq. And then there's no weapons of mass destruction. And then somehow we end up in Afghanistan. And what are we doing there? If you ask the people of Afghanistan, they would say, we're not doing much better. In fact, we're doing much worse since the Americans came 20 years ago. What are we doing there? Well, you ask Brother Ben Corley, who was a contractor, for some reason he was in Afghanistan for work. And what are those American military flag on the shoulder, what are they doing? Oh, we're guarding drug fields. Because the intelligence agencies use the profits from the drug trade for their nefarious activities. That's where your hard-earned tax dollars are going. You think that pleases God in heaven? That your life that's given to you by Him, the energy, the help to be able to work, that so much of your life is being stolen and used for evil in the world? 
That ought to make you upset. That's something to be angry about. The Bible doesn't say anger is bad. The Bible says it's wrong to be sinful when you're angry. Anger is a gift from God that you should have a feeling of there's something very wrong. There's something unjust. There's something that needs to be fixed. And then our recourse is not take out your gun or your weapon and fix the problem yourself. Your recourse is to appeal to the God of heaven who sees all, who has all power in heaven and earth, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, and ask him to do justice in that situation. In Jesus' name, and then to have confidence and belief in that prayer that he's going to answer it. And if you pray like that for your nation or for your church or for your family, beloved, I think that you're going to witness and see many wonderful things. You're going to see God move in many wonderful ways. So let's take Roe versus Wade as a great victory. Another victory in Georgia here is the Georgia Guidestones. Anybody familiar with that? Anybody know about that? Okay, that's in your, that's in your state where I, I used to live here. So Georgia, I love Georgia. But we had something up there near Shoal Creek Church in Elbert County, I think, called the Georgia Guidestones that were put up in the early 1980s. And if you were ever to go and read those things, your mouth would probably drop to the ground. It was basically 10 worldly commandments like to contrast with the Ten Commandments from Scripture. And guess what number one is? Reduce and maintain world population to 500 million. That's the first commandment. That's, that's abortion, but that's, that's a, Bill Gates, that's a whole lot of other... That is killing 7.5 billion people. If you're serious about that, and I think they are. It talks about living in harmony with nature. The Georgia Guidestones, somebody, thank God, blew them up this summer. That is a victory. <laughs> that was a stronghold of Satan. Whether you believe it or not, I believe it was. We've got other monuments. We've got other things. Laws on the books. We've got other organizations, institutions, a stronghold. This probably could get you killed saying this in the wrong circles. But Freemasonry and um, uh, their, their assemblies, those are strongholds of Satan in the community. And you see one in almost every town. That is a stronghold of Satan. They represent the very opposite of what you represent and stand for as believers. You may not realize that. And you get when you enter into that at the lower levels, you may think, oh, we're just a charitable organization. We raise money for children's hospitals. You know, we do all these good works. Well, it's part of their theology, if you want to call it that, that the good works outweigh the bad works. That's the opposite of the message of gospel. And when you get to the higher levels, look, I'm going to tell you, Exactly what they say. The lower levels, they'll say, we believe there's a God. So you might join that as a Christian and say, yeah, we're a charitable organization. You join it and you get connections, you get promoted in government, and you get maybe uh, work opportunities, and they believe in God. So it's a, good, it's a good thing to be a part of. All right, that's the deceit. And the lower level, you go up higher and higher, you find out what they're really about. And then once you're up to the high levels, you find out what it's really about. And guess what? You're sold. You're, you're in. You can't get out and maintain your life. If you try to leave, they're going to kill you. Or if you expose their secrets, they'll kill you. It's very serious. And this is what, this is what rules the world behind the scenes, by the way. It's the deep state. It's the real deep state. <clears throat> you get up to the higher levels, I'm telling you, this is exactly what they'll say. We say there's a God that wasn't a period, and his name is Satan, or Lucifer, whatever. It's a devil worship. And the people at the highest levels that you look up to as role models in Hollywood and in D.C. and in banking and in finance, they are in that. Because Jesus was told by Satan in Matthew chapter 4, look at all these kingdoms and the glory of them. And he said, I'll give you all this. All you've got to do is bow down and worship me. All right, he hasn't changed his line of attack. 
And if you're, if you're too critical of people that have done this, be humble because the Bible says, save for the grace of God, there go I. What is it that you really want? Is it fame? Is it power? I saw a young lady, poor thing, I pray for her. She was appointed to be the director of the Minister of Truth under the Biden administration. She didn't last very long, but I saw a video of her singing in like 2015, and she had made up this cute song. It's not cute at all. It's a horrible song. And she's singing, and she's laughing about it, and she's saying, what do I have to do? I want to be rich, famous, and beautiful. What do I have to do? Who do I have to have a relationship with? What do I have to, basically, what do I have to give? What do I have to sacrifice in order to get these values that she values? All right? So in the flesh, that's the way we operate. If you've been saved by the grace of God, there's another principle taking place, and that is the fear of God. That is, what does God want for my life? Uh, what is the idol in my heart that God's calling me to lay down? But all of you, especially young people, we have, well, we all, older or young, it doesn't matter. We all are tempted to have idols that we put up and we say, I just want this. If I can get this thing, if I can get this person, if I can get this experience, I can get this job, I'll be happy, I'll be content, and life will be great. That's your idol. All right? And the devil, he's going to make a deal with you. He'll say, okay, I'll give you that. All you've got to do is serve me. Okay, well, the people that you look up to, by and large, in the highest echelons of the ruling class elites, they've made that deal. Simple as that. They've made the deal. They sealed the fate of their soul for eternity. I mean, hopefully there's repentance, but I don't, you know, I don't know. But John talks about how there is a sin un, unto death, and he says, you don't have to pray for that sin. If somebody commits a sin unto death, basically it's like there's no hope of repentance for them. That's how I interpret it. If you've got a different interpretation, I welcome hearing it. That's what you're up against as a believer. But you see, it's a remarkable thing, the wisdom of Jesus Christ in the church that he's established. He's the king over all things. All power is given unto him in heaven and earth. He's established his church. His, you're like his ambassadors in the earth. But you see, this foreign territory, it rightfully belongs to him. He created it. He gave it to mankind. It was stolen. You're in, you're in kind of in captured territory, but it belongs to the Lord. And you're going to get through this. You're going to be safe with him for eternity. But I think that while you're here, he's calling you to reclaim what is rightfully his. To do battle, spiritual battle, with the weapons, with the armor that he's given to you, and to go forth as a king priest, a worshiper who is victorious and ruling in your life. I believe that's what scripture is teaching us. So he's a servant leader king. We're not going to get to the rest, but he's also, like we've been talking about, he's a priest king after the order of Melchizedek. Just go through these real quickly. Melchizedek in Psalm 110, Jesus is prophesied that he would be a, uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king. He was the priest and the king of Jerusalem, of Salem, which means peace. So he's, Hebrews 7 says he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Jesus is a priest king. That's an amazing thing because it was forbidden in the Old Testament for a king to serve as a priest. Uzziah tried to do that. He was a king and he tried to offer sacrifices or incense and he became a leper. God forbade the king from serving as a priest. And yet you're called to be a priest king. Jesus Christ is our great high priest and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you see now why, why Paul is saying now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible. Yes, he's invisible, but that doesn't make him unreal. He's immortal. He's eternal. The everlasting king. The only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. What a wonderful, glorious king. 
Lastly, he's a shepherd king. Psalm 23, we think about how the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Somebody quoted that. Maybe Brother Jeremy did in his prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, I heard it in a song. That's what it was about how he restores my soul. He's a shepherd king. So he not only, you think about a king leading. A king rules. A king leads into battle. He also, as a shepherd king, he restores. He rescues. He provides. He nourishes. When we go astray, He seeks and saves that which is lost. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So you have this regal, royal monarch who rules creation, who also condescends to be our shepherd. And that's what a good king is. That's what a servant king is. That's what a servant leader is going to be. Not somebody who just, like this, the quote that says, um, you know, what does it do? What do you do when it dawns on you you're the most powerful person in the room? Let's say you're in the business world. You realize I've got the most, or you're in the military, I've got the most authority here out of all the people. What does it do? What do you do when it dawns on you you're the most powerful person in the room? Or as the Lord Jesus Christ's case, the most powerful person in the universe? What do you do with that power? If you're Hitler, you tell all the people, all right, now y'all get down and you serve me. You do what I want. But the Lord Jesus Christ takes his power and he uses it for the benefit of those that he's leading. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You may feel like that today. You may feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And if you don't feel like that, I want you to realize the things that are going on in the world today should make you feel that way. When the possibility of World War III just happened this past week. I mean, it did. We were this close to World War III when Ukraine drops a bomb in Poland and blames Russia and wants NATO and America and its alliances to get involved in a direct conflict with Russia. You were right there. Thankfully, the truth came out, and it was pointed out that this was a Ukrainian bomb manufactured by Russia, but it had Ukrainian markings on it. That's how close we were to World War III. You're very close to a nuclear holocaust. If you're not afraid, I'm not trying to make you afraid. I'm just telling you there's some really serious things going on in the world that we need to be praying about. That we need to be appealing to the God of heaven and trusting in him over. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, then he says this, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So as you do battle, in the name of Jesus Christ, as you're following your general, the captain of our salvation, unto victory, and you go through the valley of the shadow of death, you can go with confidence. You don't have to go with anxiety or with fear or with a woe is me, defeatist attitude. I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Like Elijah or Elisha, one of them was told, his servant Gehazi, who saw the enemy that had come and surrounded their home. And Elijah or Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees round about their enemy, the host of God surrounding them. They that are with us are more than they to be with them. Your enemy may seem to have all the money, all the influence, all the weaponry, uh, all the people. But if you've got the Lord with you, you have nothing to be afraid of. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Isn't that good? He goes from being in the valley of the shadow of death to saying his cup is running over. I've got more blessings than I, can ha- than I can hold. I'm overflowing with the goodness of God, with the joy of the Lord, which is my strength. 
with the blessings of God, with the Spirit of God. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that great? It gets to start now. You get to be in the house of the Lord now, and you get to have the hope and the blessing and the promise and the assurance of being in His house forevermore, for eternity. I want to end with Revelation 4.11. This is the song that is sung in heaven. What a blessing we have these hymns that we know for a fact are sung I guess in heaven right now, and they will be sung in the future. John witnessed this. The four and twenty elders fell down before him, talking about the Lord, that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. This is the king that we serve, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Thou art worthy, For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then you go over one page, Revelation 5, 9, it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. They worship God in heaven as the creator, as the majestic ruler of all things. And then this new song that's sung, Jesus Christ is worthy to open the book, this book which contains the the providence of God, the blessings of God, the the history that we're experiencing, God's providence for the church, his blessings for the church and for his people, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. <laughs> Amen. The victory that we have in our King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, to Him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you.